Talk Shoes. Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed Episode 325 is recorded live May 4th. 2017. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where it is awful wet but not as wet as some places. Joining me this week we have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin? Darren, I am doing excellent. How about yourself? I am doing wonderful. It's been a great run here, about the last six, eight weeks, and it's time to start talking about some diving. Um, I'd like to thank everybody who's been tuning in. This last month is probably one of our lightest months as far as recording in a while, but we'll make up for that, getting back on task. Uh, for those who are interested and, and have been following uh, the activities that didn't involve scuba diving, but I, I kind of like to think are related because someday we're going to make an underwater ROV, but has been my kids' robotics team, and I have to brag a little bit, and they did very well. They went to the world competition down there in St. Louis, Missouri, and the one thing that every team says they want to get to is the the finals rounds, which are called Einstein, and actually our team this year made it to it. There's They were the captain of an alliance that won the Tesla division, and there are six divisions, and those six divisions get to play each other. So there were six alliances playing off, and we didn't make it and win the whole thing. But, you know, to say that you're uh, one of the top teams, you know, there's 3,300 teams, and I'd say this puts them in the top 10 to 15 teams in the world. So, Yeah, I was watching your uh, your progress on Facebook, and it, it seemed like you guys were almost unstoppable. I mean, every, <laughs> every week it was enough. one more championship, one more banner, one more banner, and then, oh, but... But you got you guys got so far. That was mighty impressive. There, very cool, very uh, cool. It was amazing. Thank you. And uh, the, I mean, they it, it's all them. They did all the hard work. We're just there to kind of shepherd, make sure they don't fall off the cliff. But uh, and it goes real quick when you when you get to that finals and worlds. It was uh, a couple days of qualifications and practice, and then uh, once you figure out where you're seated, which uh, they were about the fifth seated team in the division. Um, and then the way teams pick, it's kind of like uh, kickball when you're in your your playground. You get to choose who's going to be on your team, and you know the first place team picks the second place team, and the third place team picks the fourth place team, and we are the fifth. Uh, actually, I think we probably end up being the fourth alliance. Um, then we picked our our team members, and like you said, they just had the mix, and they were good at winning because it's usually two out of three when you get to playoffs, and. Gosh, the they, I think they I had my Fitbit on. I don't think my heart rate got below a hundred the whole time during <laughs> playoffs. It was just beaten, and and I'm thinking, God, this can't be good to have your heart rate racing when all you're doing is is moving a, f- a few feet around. I was the photographer, uh, take as many shots as I get. But uh, they they would they would lose the first one, then win the next two, and they just went through that. And they and like I, at one point, I turned to my son, and because they get to be a little bit of fanboys, where there's these. You call them legacy teams where they're just so good that everybody knows their name and watches them. And these are the teams that 
our team was beating, and I turned to my son and I said, "Well, what's it like to beat to beat uh, one of your idol teams?" <laughs> and he just smiled. You know, they they were having a blast. Uh, and then and then when they get on that that playoff, it was a round robin playoff where every division plays the other division, and then the top two get to go to uh, uh, best two out of three. And uh, they they run it like it's a regular television program. Um, you know, very highly produced. They have boom cams, steady cams. They're running around doing multi-camera shots. It's just, it's amazing. And the kids had a blast. Um, so, but well, go well, ahead. Very, it was very, it was very cool, Darren. I mean, I'm, and we all understand that. Hey, I mean, um, doing stuff with the family uh, podcast can hold on for a little while. Where you're doing that, and um, just very pleased at how far you guys got with that. That was quite impressive. Yeah, they just they it was just it was just fun and and congratulations to all the teams and families out there because it's it's a large uh, community between the two world competition events they had seventy thousand people in attendance. Wow! So it's a, it's a it gets to be pretty large. But that's not what we're here for. We're here to talk about some scuba diving. We got quite a bit of ground to cover and make up. I think we'll we'll move our way through. Uh, the show notes pretty quickly. I didn't, didn't see a lot. And, and it seems to be the irony here up here in the great w- Midwest or Northern Hemisphere. When it gets to be die season, it seems that the articles kind of slow down, which I guess is good because it gives us time to uh, actually talk about the real diving that's happening, which even though we, di- we don't just stop in the winter, we dive all year round, uh, it is, certainly picks up there in the summer as, as the weather gets better. First article we have up on the list is a woman hires a scuba diver to find her wedding ring after dropping it into the river. An Alabama newlywed thought she would never see her wedding ring again after accidentally knocking it into a river. Uh, Brooke Levins, 39, sailing Nakusa River with her family. She took off her engagement ring and wedding band, which is a single piece of jewelry soldered together to apply some sunscreen. She went to pick it back up. And the next thing she knew, the $5,000 ring went flying through the air. It just flung out of my fingers and plopped in the water. She explained. Yeah, I'll bet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like slow motion. I just watched well, it I, slowly well, in horror. What's that? I, I wonder if we're hearing the real story. I wonder if there was a bit of a lover's spat going on out there on oh. the river. And she's like, yeah, you, you think so? Really? Oh yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> later in the article, it talks about, about, about her husband jumping in after it. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll she pushed him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, is this from experience that you're talking about? Oh no, no, no! I mean, no. of course, you know, don't, don't don't take marital advice from a, from a twice divorced guy here, all right? But no, 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 no. <laughs> okay. Uh, but yeah, you, you, there's all sorts of reasons. I mean, I I've been afraid to uh, to wear any jewelry when I dive just for that because I'm I'm the type of guy. Even before I was a scuba diver, it just seemed like I would walk by like drain covers and I almost had like lost vertigo. Like, you know, if, if there's anything worth dropping, it would be magnetized and want to be propelled into the storm drains. Uh, so I've, I've just learned that don't, don't take anything on the boat or near water that you're not prepared to throw in or have drop in. Uh, and, and I'm thinking $5,000 for a ring. And I'm thinking I got lucky because when my wife and I got married, we, we didn't spend anywhere near 5,000. And maybe that's my tip from somebody who has been married <laughs> quite a while. Get married when you're poor and broke <laughs> because you're not going to buy a, a fancy ring. Well, she's not going to at least expect as fancy a ring anyway at that time. So No. 
course, she might be expecting a nicer ring down the road, too. Like, that's somewhat of a, you know, coming in vogue thing now is get her a nicer ring, you, oh, you yeah. know, for the 10-year, the 20-year. Mm-hmm. Well, she explained that she had bought the custom ring, and she'd only had it since March. Her and her husband were married in December, but the jeweler wasn't able to complete the design until recently. Um so he said, unable to accept that she had just watched the symbol of her marriage disappear forever. Just after a month of owning it, Levins photographed the scene and frantically messaged local scuba divers to see if they could go down there and get it. The first several divers says it was unlikely they would find it, but a scuba instructor and co-owner of Southern Skin Diver Supply, Spencer Phillips, responded a few days later, happy to help the couple look for the ring using his diving equipment and a metal detector. The group was able to return to the area where the ring was dropped, and sure enough, Phillips returned about 30 minutes later with a ring in hand. He knew if there was anybody who was going to find it, it was going to be Spencer, Levin said. I love my ring, but it, at the same time, when I lost, I just realized I haven't lost my husband or son. We all have our health. We all have each other. It's just a ring. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I wonder what the uh, conditions were there, because they mentioned it being muddy when the husband dropped in. Um Wonder how deep it was. You know, it was fortunate that she had the presence of mind to photograph the area. Hopefully, she had some landmarks to give an idea of pretty much where it is. Um, you know, I I've done some recovery for ice fishermen, but really, that's not too bad because you've, you've got a hole in the ice, so you have a pretty good landmark exactly as, as to where that the, they lost their item through, through the ice. Right. When you're looking at just a, an open expanse of water, I mean, um, in when you're down there, you know, in, in a river, if you've got 10-foot visibility, that's really good. And But you're probably not going to see a ring until you're within three feet of it. And that's if it didn't sink into the mud, you know, or get buried in the grass or, you know, hey, a fish might come along and think it's uh, a nice little shiny thing. I wonder how that tastes, you know. Um, you know, I'm sure Spencer's good, you know, to, to have found this ring at all. I'm, I'm sure there's a, a pretty good element of luck in it as well, though. Certainly. Well, well the tough thing with a ring, especially in a river – is you're moving, and then you drop it in. So you don't, do you, how long did it take her from the time she dropped it in to take the photo? Because a photo is smart. You know, take a photo of the area. I, I don't know how long this river trip was, but at least that gives you some sort of reference, some sort of starting point. But you you are moving on the river. It is dropping in. There is current taking it. And like you said, there's there's muck and silt and who knows what else. Uh, and then people never remember. I mean, we've... I, I can't tell you how many times uh, the mud club has been called out, and it's a dock. You know, there's a boat. It's there in a slip. They dropped it over the port side right there by this spot, and they swear that that's where it is. And we can go two mm-hmm. hours with metal detectors and everything and never find it. So it's, yeah, and, mm-hmm. and in a river, this is this that much more challenging uh, to go and find it. So but Yeah, but. Yeah, you've also got some current to deal with. We see it that when we're diving in Niles, you know, we'll go through an area of the river which has has you know been picked pretty clear of bottles. Come back the next week, and it's it's a whole different scene down there. Um, you know, no idea what, what the bottom is like in this area, but you know, if the picture is taken in the article where you know the, the ring was actually lost, looking at the at the the trees behind her, you know, you can see that you know we're dealing with probably two hundred. 200 feet of water here, well, 200 foot, foot across from where they are. So, you know, I think there was there was a pretty good amount of luck in this here, too. Oh, certainly. I mean, that you're correct there. If that's that river, it does look to be quite wide. Uh, you know, and, and the metal detector didn't hurt. I mean, anytime 
you've got that, and hopefully you didn't have enough a lot of false objects that he was picking up as well. Yeah, but those false objects are really an issue too, you know, because um, you know you, you talk to anyone who's done any kind of treasure hunting, and for every ring you find, you find five hundred pull tabs. So. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> the way it goes, I mean, it certainly uh, is. I see the posts from the posts from Rob and Ron and my other uh, treasure hunting buddies, and yeah, they find an awful lot of junk <laughs> for every every. Oh, but but do they find some good stuff though? Uh, you know, I've been to some of these metal detector meetings, and uh, it's really really impressive what these folks are finding. You know, they uh, you know lots of nice rings and uh, necklaces and uh, you know old medallions and ancient tokens and things and uh you know they, they these folks with the metal detectors that know how to use them really do find some cool stuff i know mac on the show has shared some of the things that he has found over the years and uh, it's really impressive you know you go to a place where there was an old amusement park or um you know uh, a bus stop or uh an old uh old intersection there and you just start poking around in, in, in the roadbed or where you think the walkways were and they'll pull up all kinds of cool stuff. So, yeah, that's it. Just yeah, the the odds of it being naturally occurring and magnetic, at least around here, is not common. So at least it it narrows down to what you're finding is being somewhat man-made. Now, desirable or not, is another issue. But, yeah. Uh, well, well, good news for her that they found it, and congratulations for him for being such a good person and doing it. Um, this next article is out of Deeper Blue, uh, deeperblue.com, and it's talking about odd underwater pursuits for adventurous scuba divers and free divers. And they list three items that people might want to do if they consider themselves a little bit adventurous and they like to scuba dive or free dive. First one is underwater ice hockey. They said if the thought of regular ice diving isn't challenging enough, consider taking up underwater ice hockey. Not be confused with ice hockey or even underwater hockey. It's uh, sport played in frozen ponds or pools. I'm trying to think who lets her pool freeze. Although a term- tournament held in Siberia in 2015 allowed participants to play on scuba, traditional underwater ice hockey is reserved for free divers. Uh, the game is played underwater with an ice rink measuring 6 meters in width and 8 meters in length. Players equipped with wetsuit, dive mask, fins, and a hockey stick to pluck designed to float under the ice. The goals are formed by holes cut in the ice at either end of the rink. Unlike conventional ice hockey teams strive to score points by guiding the puck in the opposite direction, each player is allowed to surface for 30 seconds. The game originated in Austria, where it was first developed by Australian freediver. So I've, I've seen this, because a the version, they're calling it underwater ice hockey, but there's no ice. They're in a pool. But I have seen underwater, actually, ice hockey, Done with scuba. Yeah, they're just on the bottom. Yeah, they're, they're, they're usually wearing a dry suit. They're upside down, and they're mm-hmm. playing with a floating hockey puck. And, and to me, that's more extreme. I mean, this is I mean, I mean, how wimpy. You can pop up any time. It's not like you're going to drown. I say that as, a, as if I could do it. But the next sport that they consider to be extreme is extreme underwater ironing. Concept is an offshoot of extreme ironing, a tongue-in-cheek sport that combines the thrill of extreme outdoor activity with the satisfaction of a well-ironed shirt. The sport began in the UK in 1997 when factory worker Phil Shaw decided to spice up an evening of chores by 
taking the ironing outside, the novelty of ironing in strange places took off, and Shaw took the new sport in a world tour in 1999. Disciples of the sport have taken their ironing boards, skiing, jumping, bungee jumping, rock climbing, and, of course, scuba diving. In March 2008, the first world record for extreme underwater ironing was set with a team of 72 divers, organized synchronizing underwater ironing event. In 2009, the record for the largest number of people ironing underwater at the same time was broken by a group of 86 divers in Britain. The the current Guinness World Records held by the Dutch Diving Club, who organized a mass underwater ironing event in 2011 that involved 173 divers. There are rules. Ironing boards must be at least one meter long and 30 centimeters wide and have legs. The iron must itself be real. The garments must be towel-sized or larger. Yeah, f- but how are you ironing these? I, I can't imagine them being plugged in or... <laughs> oh, that's it. <laughs> if, you, of, if you really yeah. want this to be extreme, let's face it, yeah. you want you want them plugged in. And no ground fault yeah. wussy stuff either. You know, we're, we're talking mm-hmm. 240 volts. That's what you want to be doing. Now, that's extreme underwater ironing. Yeah. I, I want to see the uh, Tim Allen style iron going on down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We want we got, you know, and that that needs to be about you know eight k or something of voltage. That that would be that'd be it. I mean, you're insulated. You're in a dry suit, and you got to be pretty mm-hmm. safe. Well, and yeah, and, and it's it's a rubber suit, you know, so you should be insulated, right? Yeah, yeah you're no fine. doubt, no doubt, yeah, fine. Uh, yeah, don't don't well, don't call me when you well, fry yourself. We got Dave Tonham in the chat room. Thanks, thanks for being here, Dave. He's uh, on the league for this in Ann Arbor going on. So there's an underwater uh, ironing I don't know, league. It's a cool article, according to Tonham in here. So yeah, I don't know. I I didn't get past the mermaid. Once I, I mean the, the opening shot in this article is a mermaid, and I kind of didn't get past that. So well, mermaids are hot. You have to admit. So professional mermaiding. Which I don't think there's going to be much of a demand for me as a mermaid or merman, whichever way it goes. But I think for some, uh, uh, being a mermaid could be a lucrative business. You know, that they, they said that you get paid to take part in underwater modeling shoots, perform at spectaculars for aquariums, resorts, private parties, and children's events. If you get it right, mermaids can be a lucrative career, but it isn't easy. You need to perfect the dolphin kick, physically demanding skill. It's somewhat trickier when... Way down with a prosthetic tail. Shell bikini tops don't afford the same exposure protection as wetsuits or dry suits, so you don't need to have a high tolerance for cold water as well. Exemplary breath holding techniques is a must. Silicone uh, professional quality mermaid tails can cost in the range of two to $3,000. There are several mermaid schools around the world, including one in Hawaii. Uh, Wiki Witchy Springs State Park offers mermaid camps for adults and kids as long as young as seven years old as well as a Daily Mermaid show in the submerged auditorium. I'm wondering if Mac has been there. We all know that Mac has kind of got a thing for mermaids. Yeah. I I don't know if I've been to this one. I've been in that same area down there. I think that's not too far from Crystal Springs, This uh, that place in Florida. So, yeah, we'll have to ask Mac. Uh, but that, that, was a, that was a famous one at one point in time. I, I believe it's still in operation. Wiki, uh, W-E-E-K-I-W-A-C-H-E, Spring State Park. They have a number of videos on YouTube about their different their different programs, and um, I haven't been there to see one, but if I was in the area, I'd try to stop in. 
but yeah, they they really do get into the mermaids. Uh, it's quite a you know they sing and they there's quite a few of them there by the videos. Well, very cool. Now we get into a little bit of uh, shipwreck talk. Well, maybe if I hit the right button. Wiki watch, okay. This next article is from the Smithsonian Magazine. Durham boats once fueled trade in the Erie Canal. A shipwreck has been identified as a rare canal boat. Six years ago, a team of divers at the bottom of Oneida Lake, a body of water known to contain wreckage of plenty of old boats, there they found something exciting, a wreck they thought was a rare boat, but the wreck was really all that it seemed. It took years, but the wreck has finally been identified as Durham Boat, reports Sarah Moss of the Post Standard. That makes it the first find of its kind. It sheds lights in the history of the boat that once common along the Erie Canal. The channel opened in 1825 to link Erie, Lake Erie with the Hudson River. At the time, it was the most technology-advanced canal in the world, and Durham Boat was a perfect vessel to cargo through the locks and narrow spaces. Flat-bottom boats could sail in as few as 20 inches of water and carry about 17 tons of cargo swiftly. Durham boats even played a role in the Revolutionary War. Remember the iconic image of Washington across the Delaware make a surprising tack on the Haitians? He was using a Durham boat, the crafts that transported supplies for American troops. Despite the rich history, Durham boats are nowhere to be found these days. Only one known replica of the boat exists, so the discovery contributes to the maritime history now, more is known about the boat, which was discovered in 2011 by Tim Kaza, Christopher Martin, and Timothy Downing. In 2013, Ben Ford, an underwater archaeologist at the Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Why, why does Indiana University need a university in Pennsylvania? Uh, worked the divers undercover and analyzed the boat, but it was taken until now to, for the team to feel secure enough in their findings to say, in fact, it is a Durham boat. An environmental scientist identified its material, Moses reports, white oak for the frame and bottom, eastern white pine along the sides. The boat was 62 and a half feet long, 10 feet wide, and carry about 20 tons of cargo. Inside, there are five and a quarter tons of small stones. The rocks don't appear to have, been sunk, to have sunk the boat. Rather, researchers tell Moses its position indicates it probably went down in a storm, giving Oneida's uh, lake reputation as a treacherous body of water, no surprise the crew had to abandon the ship. After finding and carefully documenting the boat, divers buried it once more. They weren't playing catch and release. They were complying with the law, as Moses notes. The Abandoned Shipwreck Act of 1987 means submerged vessels belong to the state they're found in. New York has defended its right to wrecks before, like when it prevented divers from turning a 19th century schooner into a tourist attraction. The wreck may be buried once more, but at least the researchers now know a bit more about the evasive Durham boat. Well, that doesn't mean you have to bury it. Well, if they're concerned about it, you know, being pillaged, I don't know. It's not that there's much besides rocks. Yeah. Well, and I'm looking at the pictures. That boat was naturally exposed. That was not, I don't know, it's, it's hard to tell. Because you can see some muscles on it, so it looks like they have some mm -hmm. zebra muscles there. But then there's some that, so I don't know if they moved the sand off it and then documented it. But either way, that was not completely buried. Well, it looks like there was a, a minimal amount of it exposed, but then they've dug down to the ribs, and uh, kind of hard to tell. I'm, I'm seeing ribs and 
Yeah, I, I, a box there. I agree with you because the stuff that's muscle encrusted, some of it's completely rotted off and some of it's a little mm-hmm. bit more established, but you can see some where it was obviously covered by sand or some sort of silt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think they just want to keep covered up probably for preservation to keep the, the uh, muscles from growing on it. Um, you know, if it's indeed so rare, I mean, I've never heard of a Durham boat, um, but if it's the only one they know of they've found, then, yeah, by all means, uh, you know, do, do what you can to protect it. Um, I'm, I'm looking at the photo. Doesn't that look like that's a steel bar? Um, I don't know if you can see. Oh, it's like this... yeah, yeah, kind of, kind of near, near the bottom of the picture there. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm thinking that that would bar. put it about the age of Max Wreck, you know, where they were still wooden boats, but, you know, you started to have uh, iron and other metals being introduced. Well, there was a, it was about 1825. Well, that's when the Shallow canal was. Yeah. So I'm thinking, that I'm I'm going to bet this is more, you know, 1850s to 1870s. I'm, and I'm talking like I know what I'm talking about, which I'm just, mm-hmm. uh, just me being a gambling person. But uh, a cool find. I, I mean, that would be great to actually have been the one who found that. Well, it definitely is an older one. I mean, looking at it, I'm not seeing any, any pin, any metal sticking out of it here so well maybe a little bit at the bend there with the rib but no because you know normally the, the the wood is weathered enough and of course the metal pins that hold the a lot of the boats together stick out and i'm not seeing any metal pins in these pictures you're not to say that they aren't there but they're not in the pictures and um when you're dealing with boats that are put completely wooden construction then uh yes you are dealing with things which are you know 1820s and earlier so yeah, th- th- this could be a, an exceptionally old one here, but I'm not. An, I I know nothing about Durham boats, <laughs> so no, I, I I don't other than what I've seen in in photos and the, just the history of canals, which they were very handy for moving cargo. Uh, now, how's how's this? Now these those guys, I'm sure, found it just by going down there and looking. But this next person, I don't even think they had to get wet to find this one. Mystery shipwreck graveyard spotted by Google Earth. It's, Spotted on Google Earth by UFO Hunter, an avid UFO hunter looking for signs of alien activity on Google Earth, believes he has discovered three new shipwrecks. Scott Waring posted a discovery in a website, UFO Sightings Daily, which usually features details of alleged UFOs or alien sightings. The alien chaser highlighted three dark boat-shaped objects in the shallows off the coast of Costa Verde, Mexico. He posted today, you know me always searching for hidden mysteries of life. Well, today I stumbled upon something that's not a UFO, but still absolutely amazing due to its size. The first alleged wreck was 138 meters long, according to Mr. Waring, which is more than half the length of the Titanic, which is 269 meters long. He said, I found an old shipwreck off Mexico. This one is huge. It's 138 meters across, according to Google Ruler. That detail is outstanding. Oh, and by the way, it's a treasure. 138 meters of iron is is roughly 10 million plus recycled. Why do I not believe that? Is iron really that valuable for a shipwreck? That it's 10 million dollars well, in iron? You you you've got to recover it. You know, that might be assuming it's already at the scrapper. You know, when you're talking these these uh shipwrecks that are way off uh, you know, on the coast of some godforsaken island out there, you know, who knows if it's even, you know, financially worthwhile to go all the way out there and pick them up. Yeah, so um, 
Okay, so that might be and, it. It might be if you had it, if you had it all up in whatever form the scrapper wanted it, then maybe it's worth that. Well, you know, we certainly don't want to you know, encourage anyone to have any ideas of long <laughs> scrapping shipwrecks here. You know, we, we, we've had a few articles in the past about you know the different uh, World War II grave sites being pillaged. You know, there were you know war sites up in the Denmark area that uh, were being cleaned out, and there's another one further south, the Pacific, as I recall. Um, so, yeah, yep. are not scrap metal. Yeah, he says uh, he doesn't believe it's a freighter because it's a thin along its ends. He's thinking it's more of an old battleship. He says, I researched old sunken ships in the area there, but I couldn't find that much. I don't think. <laughs> you, can't, you, can't make, you cannot make that kind of assumption about that. Yeah, well, he's, he's looking for UFOs, so. I Let's, mean, basically, we're, we're, we're looking at a picture here of an atoll which has um, some metal, metal around the edge of it. And of course, we all know that Google Earth does have some kind of goofy-looking shots here and there. You can't necessarily say something is there just because Google Earth says it is, although a lot of people are using Google Earth to define wrecks. I mean, I mm-hmm. like to you know, virtually, virtually walk the, the shore of Lake Michigan and see what we can see out there, especially when the, when the new versions pop up here and there. Um, you know, we really don't know if these, if these are... You know, new finds or old finds or scuttles or part of a reef that was put out there intentionally. Um, like there was, oh, two years ago, locally here in Michigan along the Leelanau Peninsula, we had a lot of stuff in the news about the uh, Coast Guard doing their uh, training flights out there had uh, discovered a number of shipwrecks out there off the shore. And, you know, the, the, the news came out like all these, all these new shipwrecks. Well, I know that MSRA, Michigan Shipwreck Bridge Association, got to looking into it, and uh, they were able to actually, uh, you know, consider most of them to, to be um, currently known wrecks. I know there was at least one, though, which they did not have records on, and they actually went out and, t- and took a look at it, but there wasn't enough there to uh, really identify it. I know that some of the younger members of MSRA went out and took a look at it, and it was kind of an interesting program they did on them. But, you know, who's to say if, if these are new finds or old scuttles or what we're, what we're looking at here, so. Exactly, and and you have to have, be really in that area. And if he's hasn't done any cross-checking with uh, groups who have who've been searching, then he just might have overlooked them. But still cool. I mean, you, I got, you, you still yeah. feel like you've discovered something when you see it. Some are questioning whether it's a shipwreck, but I'd have to agree with them. If these photos are are real, that is certainly what a shipwreck would look like on the bottom. Well, give us give us some numbers here. Let's let's see what we got here. Huh. Um, I don't. Um, back to the chat room here. We got Ta- Dave Tonneman talking about there being a, a canal boat a canal boat in Black Diamond, Buckeye Lake. Oh, cool. We're talking about the same kind of canal boat we were in the previous article. Of course, with the lag, he might not might be not it, hearing my question. <laughs> it, and, it might, and it might be 10 minutes before they answer. Uh, while he's doing that, let's take a look at this next article, which is Christopher Columbus's anchor discovered in a Caribbean shipwreck. A centuries-old anchor is believed to be from one of Christopher Columbus's ships that has been found in the Caribbean. It was located off Turks and Caicos Island. The analysis reveals it dates back to the 1500s. The anchor weighs between... 545 kilograms and 680 kilograms, which fits the typical size they needed for a Columbia's, a Columbia's, 
a Columbus-era ship. Discovery will be revealed in the third episode of Discovery's Channel's documentary, Cooper's Treasure. Currently ailing in the U.S., the anchor is from Christopher Columbus, historical shipwreck. Discovery specialist Daryl Michaelis, Michael, I bet it's a Greek name that I can't pronounce, who led the Caribbean expedition, said in the show, I'm telling you, stick around, it's just beginning of an amazing story. Mr. Cooper died in 2004, but was dis- in space discovered a series of anomalies which he believed to be shipwrecks. The team used Mr. Cooper's map, armed with a magnetometer, managed to identify shipwrecks in areas where they located the treasure. So, And this couldn't happen to be a press release just to promote the show at all. Well, looking at the source, independent.uk, yeah. Yeah, it could be probably a promotion. Yeah, but that's fine. I Still mean, cool. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd watch it. Yeah. As long as it gets on Netflix. But, huh? you, know, <laughs> but you know, you know, ships ships do throw anchors all the time. You know, uh, it's actually kind of a cool one over at the uh, Dawson Center by Detroit. Uh, you can actually put your hands on an Edmund Fitzgerald anchor right there at the Dawson Center in Detroit. And, uh, surprising how often ships lose their anchors. It's one of the items they were trying to use to identify uh, what is believed to be the uh, Queen Anne's Revenge, um, which is you know Black Blackbeard pirate ship, was uh, found out off of one of the Carolinas, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm kind of half guessing on that one, but uh, you know they were able to uh, find an anchor that was a little ways away from the wreck because they believe the uh, ship was stuck on a reef, they found a uh, kedge anchor, which is one would say would haul out in the boat at an angle from the wreck and then try to winch the, well, drop it off, drop it off of the, uh, the yawl boat and then try to winch on the anchor, you know, to pull themselves off of the, uh, off the reef, which kind of went along with the story of, uh, what happened to the Queen Anne's Revenge. Well, Dave in the chat room said that that was a canal boat that he was talking about that they found in uh, Black Diamond. Mm-hmm. So that'd be cool. That'd be that'd yeah, be fun I'd, to dive on. Now, Black Diamond, we're talking up in that's over in Washington State, right? No, I think he's talking about something closer by. So let's let's uh, use a great book of everything if I can type. Oh, maybe he's referring to the, the Black Diamond is what the, is the name of the canal boat, what they're referring to it as. That's got to be it, yeah. The boat is named Black Diamond. According to Dave. All right. Okay. In Buckeye Lake. So, okay, uh, well, Ohio. D- D- well, Dave's in Ohio, so Buckeye Lake. Uh, I'll come in together here. All yeah. right. Well, very good. Well, that does it for Scuba in the News. I'd like to thank everybody who's listening, everybody who uh, supports the show. I'd like to thank WRVO Radio for putting us on the air one more year. If you like hunting, fishing, or the great outdoors, you want to turn into WRVO Radio. Uh, plenty of programs to listen to. And we haven't, it's been a while since we've given a shout-out to some of the other diving podcasts, so if you like Scuba Obsessed, why not turn into Diver Sink? That's uh, our buddy Rich Sinowick on the other side of the state. He puts that one on, which is a weekly program on scuba diving where he talks about his experiences and goings-ons and expeditions and excursions. 
and uh, maybe we do a little bit of self-promotion. If you like the program, why not give us a four-star, not four-star, heck, that's underselling it. Well, how about a five-star review on iTunes? Uh, also on TalkShoe, if you can give us a review there, that helps. Those reviews help get people onto the program. And then if you've been listening for a while and you, and you have been enjoying it, why not give us a dollar at least? Whatever the value is you're receiving the program, if you like it that much, uh, visit our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Look around for the links. There should be a Patreon link. You click on that, and, uh, you know, a dollar, $3 or more will give you ac- early access to the show notes. And uh, I'd like to thank all our supporters on Patreon. And as we get to the end of the show, we'll do some shout-outs to uh, Vanessa and our other Dive Nitrox supporters who get uh, recognized each program. Uh, the website is www.scubaobsessed.com. We're on Twitter at scubaobsessed, facebook.com forward slash scubaobsessed.com. We're to that time of the show where we are going to talk about the divings that have been going on. And I've been playing around with robots and not doing any diving, so I live vicariously through our other divers, which just so happens to be Kevin this week. Kevin, I understand that you have been doing a little bit of diving, and it's been a little bit uh, unusual compared to the open circuit that we're accustomed to. What have you been doing? Well, um, over the last week, I went and got certified for a diving rebreather. got my uh, Patty Tech 40 ECCR certification. Um, got that with uh, Rick Sinowick from Divers Incorporated over there in uh, White Star Quarry, Ohio. Did a series of it was nine dives over uh, five days. It had a total of 528 minutes underwater. Did uh, 211 minutes in one day underwater. Now this is over several dives. Uh, I'm still pretty sloppy with the unit. <laughs> I'm, I'm very, very new at it. Uh, when you when you're new with it, you you know they they, they come with rather small tanks. You know in comparison to uh, conventional scuba gear. You know, we're used to using an, an 80 cubic foot tank or maybe even some doubles. Um, you know, breathers can come with uh, as small as a pair of, thir- of uh, 13 cubic feet tank. Tanks, um, mine has a, a pair of 23s. It's bigger than most, but still, that's not an awful lot of gas to work with. And uh, but I'm, I'm pretty sloppy with it yet. You know, I'm I'm getting comfortable with it, but uh, you know, I I go through a lot of diluent and. I understand that I probably will for a while yet. Now, is that use, but, uh, usage on the deal you went to? Is that just a part of the buoyancy getting used to? Well, in part, you know, because you, you're using your, your diluent uh, does feed your uh, buoyancy compensator. Um, I'll give a little bit of a, of a breakdown with, with rebreathers for our listeners here. I, I know Dave Tom in the chat room is pretty familiar with him there. Um, basically, a rebreather works by you know you're rebreathing the air, you're recycling the air. Um, you will your body will produce uh, CO2, and on part the the air you're breathing goes through a loop, and when you exhale, the air will go through um, what's called the scrubber, which has an absorbent material in it, which pulls out the CO2, and the air is constantly being checked for uh, 
It's oxygen content. There are uh, a series of O2 sensors in the units. Mine, mine has three, some of as many as five. Then um, it will have a target percentage of oxygen to have in the unit. It's measured in, uh, in, your, in your PO2 as it's, you know, and the unit is set up so that you can maintain a higher pressure of oxygen within your system than you would have in conventional scuba or, or on, on, on land. And the higher percentage of oxygen, for one, means that your body absorbs less nitrogen. For two, it also means that your body processes the nitrogen in it out faster. So the real advantage with the rebreathers is that you can stay down deeper longer without going into decompression. Um, you eventually will go into decompression, but it's pushed back dramatically. Uh, and then when you do go into decompression, because the rebreather is constantly feeding you nitrox, then you do um, you know, process through the decompression much, much faster. Um, you know, they've actually been, been around longer than conventional scuba gear. Uh, they were being used uh, for mining equipment in uh, underwater mines or mines that had a, a high water table, um, I gather, back into the, uh, the late 19th century. So they've been around in different forms for a long, long, long time. You know, they are a little more complicated than conventional scuba. Um, you know, there are a different set of risk factors involved with them. Um, you know, they're, but there are a, a huge advantages to them as well. You know, basically now you've got all of your, your tech equipment in a package which weighs, you know, probably about a little more than half what a pair of, what a comparable set of doubles would. You have just about an unlimited supply of air when you're down there too. Um, when you're running a rebreather, the, uh, we, we know from conventional scuba equipment that the deeper you go, the faster your air supply goes, the, the, the more air you go through. With the um, rebreather, your air consumption is actually based upon your metabolism. And you metabolize the same amount of oxygen, produce the same amount of CO2, uh, depth independent. doesn't really matter where you're in the water column. You're going to process the same amount. Um, we all process approximately one liter per minute of oxygen. And when you start doing the math on it, uh, a uh, like my 23 cubic foot tanks is a, is a, a three-liter tank. Well, that three-liter tank of oxygen there holds potentially uh, 585 liters of O2. That's 585 minutes worth of O2. Now, operating at ideal efficiency. Um, <laughs> there's no way you're going to stay down long enough to burn up all that O2. <laughs> so, uh, your time down there is actually generally limited by you know how much how, how much time you want to spend in deco, and how long you can tolerate the cold. Um, you know, other people are using these things in, in warm water that are staying down for six hours. Um, my particular unit has a uh, a four hour scrubber on it. It's rated for two hundred and forty minutes, and that is theoretically the limit of the unit. So, um, but a lot of advantages to them. They're a little pricey. Um, you are kind of, in effect, starting over, though, when you do rebreather training. Um, the buoyancy is very, very different 
we're we're used to with scuba diving, how you uh, you know swimming along the bottom and you come to a barrel, you want to go over the barrel, so you inhale, your lungs get bigger, and your body comes up and you swim over the barrel. Well, you try that same technique on a rebreather and you, know, you crash into the barrel. You don't go up over <laughs> it. Nope. You will because now your lungs are balanced by the counter lungs. Um, part of the loop, the the air which you're breathing now, as you exhale, goes actually into a couple of sacs that, depending upon the design, they may sit on your chest, they may be on your back, they may be on your shoulders, um, different places where they mount the counter lungs. But in effect, you, when you inhale or exhale, you um, your body volume stays the same, so you don't have that little bit of a, a cheating tweak about going up over the barrel down there. Uh, although there are other little cheats you can do here and there, because you, you actually can modify the uh, the volume of air that you're breathing very very rapidly if you'd like. Um, you know, you're uh, targeting to have um, what they call minimum loop. You're trying to have the minimum amount of air in the loop to get by on. And basically, if you want to descend a little bit, you can just dump a little bit of air by exhaling out of your mask. Then, boom, you just reduce your volume, and down you go a little bit. Um, you want to add a little bit more? Well, if you're running minimum loop and you inhale a little larger than you normally would, well, guess what? You just added volume to it now. So you, you still can do the little cheat of going over the barrel, but then you're being inefficient with with your gas. And, you know, is that right? Is that wrong? Well, it depends upon how long you want your gas to last. So, but like I say, I'm not an expert on it. I'm trained on it. I'm certified on it. I have a, you know, a Tech 40 certification now. Um, I do recommend them, though. I mean, as a Good reason why I went and plunked down the cash for this for this baby here. Um, I want to stay out of deco. I, I like going deep and not having a tremendous amount of decompression. Um, I'm certified now to do up to 10 minutes decompression now. Um, ideally, I'm supposed to keep it at, at a single level decompression too. Um, in practice, that may not be real practical, but that's the target that I'm working towards. Um, but on a rebreather, to have 10 minutes of decompression is going to be, you know, probably twice the amount of commitment you would have on open circuit, um, whether it's going to do the depth or the time or the length of time you're down there, because uh, it just pushes it back um, an astounding amount. Um, I know when I was one of my dives at White Star, we'd spend most of the dive below 60 feet, and... I don't know, I'm like uh, over an hour into the dive, we're like at 70 minutes, and, you know, I look down, and I've got like 98 minutes until I'm in deco. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh, wow. Like, yeah, that's after being there for an hour, you know, and most of it below 60 feet. Yeah, because, so. I mean, that's a depth that we frequently get to at Lake 16, and it's not uncommon to come on your loop back uh, from Lake, Lake 16, and it's got you in four or five minutes of deco. Now, as you start coming up and doing your safety stops, it, it recalculates and says, ah, you really weren't that bad. But uh, for you to have that much uh, safety margin to have an, another hour before you start getting a deco, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's, it's 
just basically flooding your system with oxygen the whole time. You know, uh, you know my particular unit, you um, set it on uh, different partial pressures. You can, uh, you know, basically when you're running shallow, like under 50 feet, I've got mine set on a, a PO2 of uh, 0.5, um, which means I'm, I'm breathing the equivalent of a 50% mix of oxygen. Okay, that's the equivalent of there. Um, it's adjusted for depth and all that. It gets complicated, which I won't get into. Um, but then when I go deep, I, if I'm going deeper than um, 60 feet, you know, I'll put it on a, um, you know, PO, on, on a 1.2 PO2. Right. And now, because you can't actually, it's the equivalent of having 120% oxygen, which you could, of course, could not have on the surface. But you can have it deeper depth because now the pressure compounds it on you there. Mm-hmm. And it is just pushing that nitrogen. I mean, because now you have such a, a larger percentage of oxygen in there, your body has a hard time absorbing nitrogen. Yeah, <laughs> so, you're, you're I mean, not yeah. giving it much chance. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you still are picking it up. Yes, you are, because there's still a percentage of nitrogen in there. But it's just, it blows your mind just how far, how far it pushes it back. It's uh, It's really cool. So... So what's the next step with uh, your training on the rebreather? Well, my next step is uh, I do plan on going uh, mixed gases training on it. Um, haven't quite decided on the route I'm going with that there. Uh, I can continue with Patty, and uh, that means having uh, 100 hours on the rebreather and, uh, of course, working on a lot of skills in the meantime. I, I did find that working with Rick, you know, I did have a f- I do a few skills of basic scuba, which I'm a little rusty at, which I'm, I'm working on. You know, they're just things which uh, you don't think about because you don't do it very often. And, like, um, part of the rebreather training, you do go back and um, go over those basic skills to make sure that, that you can do, you know, mask removal, that you can, you know, run your compass. You know, there are things that what you need to be able to do, which you're like, oh, yeah, I kind of forgot about those things, you know. Yeah. Well, the, the one thing in talking to Rich, because uh, the mask removal doesn't worry me, the uh, running of the compass, eh. I'm I'm pretty good at doing that. It's the valves that I think I would be I would get taught, uh, caught on is you know is, is being able to reach off and do the valve drills at least on doubles. Uh, is there something equivalent on a rebreather where you're doing a lot of valve work? Uh, not a lot, but but you do do some. You know, you you, you do have to be able to uh, turn off off your valves. There's what you call boom boom drills, where uh, you heard something explode, ah. and yeah, I mean something went boom. And first thing you do is, well, you look up. You know, did did I have a, a catastrophic failure in my in in my in my unit somewhere? Am I seeing bubbles coming, screaming off 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 of my body somewhere? And of course, you you, you may not have bubbles coming screaming off of you. It, it might have been from your buddy. Um, might have been a boat over you overhead backfired. Who knows what what the boom actually was? But if you do see bubbles, then yes, you got to sh- start shutting down down valves. Um, although that's not as scary on a rebreather as it is on open circuit, um, because you still have air in the loop. So even if you turn off your diluent and your oxygen, uh, it still takes several minutes for your body to metabolize down to a critical level, because a, a PO2 of, of a 0.16 will support life. Um, the the air we breathe is is at point is at 0.21. Um, you get well actually no 0.16 will not support life. It has to be like a minimum of um, like 0.17 I believe to support life. Um, you really don't like it getting below 0.19. But we, when you watch you know your oxygen sensors on your 
on your uh, on your handset, your PO2 go, go down. You know, if you're sitting at a, a 1.2 PO2 and you all of a sudden lose all your oxygen, um, it's going to take. I mean, depending upon you know, how agitated you are, um, a number of minutes for that to go down, being you know no longer able to support life. You're going to have all kinds of time to uh, address whatever the issue is, and something kind of um, bothers open circuit people. You know, conventional scuba is that we're used to. Oh, there's a problem. I'm out of here. I'm done. Okay, I'm you know I'm doing a CISA. I'm dropping my weights. I'm um, I'm heading up no matter what. Well, with the rebreather, uh, you actually try to fix it. You know, um, you get used to a scuba moving really fast to address address issues. With the rebreather, no, actually you're, you're being thoughtful. You're, you're going back into into mind. Okay. Um, my PO2 is high. What am I doing for this? Oh, I need to do a dilute and flush, or my sensors aren't aren't reading properly. What am I going to do here? Oh, well, I'm going to do a do a, a, a I'm going to look to see what the the PO2 should be because if you're using the shear water or the different computers, you can scroll through and see what PO2 is supposed to be at that depth, and then you uh, do a a, a a diluent flush to see which sensor reads what it's supposed to read. And then you basically fly based upon, upon that sensor. You're, you're done. You're done diving, but you don't necessarily need to go off the loop. You can you can keep flying the machine, um, you know, on one sensor if you know which one sensor is good. But you know, really at that point, you are done. You are bailing out. You're all done. Um, it's just you know better if you can finish the dive on the loop, um, and and then you can if you understand the the, the unit. Um, Probably better than half of my training was actually learning, just understanding the machine, you know, understanding the relationships of, um, you know, you push this button, what happens? What happens to the PO2? Um, What happens to your gas supply? Um, You know, the the different hazards inherent in the machine, you know, the way to deal with the different hazards. Um, You know, yeah, there there was a lot of diving, don't get me wrong, but when you learn to be a rebreather diver, you learn how that machine works inside and out. Um, it, it's life support. It is your life support. Um, you know, they're, they're complicated, but, you know, with some training and understanding and good instruction, uh, you can figure out, you, you can understand how it works and what you can get away with and what you can't get away with. So, so what, what's the next step for you? So you've, you've gotten the certification. Uh, I imagine you just need to get some more hours in. What, what do you do beyond that? Well, I I haven't quite decided if I'm going to st- stick with Patty and or, or go with, with TDI. I'm not quite sure with my, my which organization there, but my next goal is to get uh, uh, mixed gas training. Now I want to be able to because uh, I'm still restricted to 130 feet. You know, I don't have any trimix training at this point. So you know that's my next step is to get the hours on the unit and get the skills on the unit so I can get uh, mixed gas training on it. So you picture yourself as like how we picture Bob, where you're the first one in the water and the last one out? Well, the last one out. Not necessarily the first one in. Uh, I'm, I'm still pretty clumsy in this thing here as far as getting in the water. So, um, I'm, But I, I might be the last one out, yeah. I mean, what, what I was, it was, it was seeing what Bob did with his, you know, when well, there was a, we went out to the um, Ann Arbor Number 5, and I believe we had uh, at least two boats out there, maybe three. But seeing how Bob would you know, go in ahead of us, 
Now, Bob is a tech guy. Bob is uh, right. Mixed mix, mix gas train. Bob does often run Trimix in his. He's qualified for that. I'm not, but he is in and at the bottom. Spends most of his dive time on the bottom. Comes out by far last by like 15, 20 minutes last. It's like, oh yeah, I had uh, four minutes of deco. You know, and he's been on the bottom at 160 for a half an hour. Okay, yeah. I mean, it just, like, you know, right. And, and, and the thing and, people and, need to realize about Bob is he was almost that way on open circuit. I mean, you you where you or me would be doing 120 cubic feet of air, he can get by in like 40 or 60. He was just he's, that efficient with air. Well, he's he's not a real big guy. Plus, uh, you know, with his. Uh, well, you know, he, he works out a tremendous amount. He has all kinds of cardio. I know he, he rides his bike, you know, thousands of miles every year. I get the notification every day that he's gotten on a bike, just making me feel guilty for not getting out there. <laughs> <laughs> That's Bob. Yeah, he's out there a lot. So, but but yeah, I mean, and 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 they've they've come down in price. They're not um, expensive as they used to be. Um, I know Bob was really trying to steer me towards uh, a Kiss Spirit. And I was kind of surprised. Uh, those brand new, I believe, sell for around thirty five hundred dollars. They're not that really? expensive in, in the rebreather scheme. Correct. Don't correct. tease me. Thirty five hundred dollars. Yeah. I mean, I got credit card room for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, what's critical is you have to look at the training too. Okay? Right. Right. Uh, you know, whatever you're gonna, whatever rebreather unit you're gonna use. You gotta get certified for. There has to be a, a teacher in the area who's going to train you on it, or someone you're going to, going to go travel to see. So, you know, if you're interested in it, you know, you, you just need to start reading on them and doing your homework. There are, you know, dozens of manufacturers out there, and they all have their advantages and their disadvantages. And you need to look at what people are diving in your area. You need to look at. Um, you know, what you want to do with it. Do you want to fly with it? Well, if you're going to travel with it, then you want something that's not particularly heavy. That was part of why I went with the Hollis Prism. It's one of the the lighter um, electronic-controlled rebreathers out there. Um, not the lightest, but one of the lighter, and, and in my opinion, it was the um, best reputation unit for as light as it was in an electronic-controlled uh, rebreather because you have manual control, the electronic control, and... Bob Sweeney, his kiss is fully manual. Um, he watches his PO2 on his handset, and uh, as necessary, he pushes a button to add oxygen to it. There, um, my prism, I can do the I can do the same. I, I can watch and run it manual if I want to, or I can um, put the set point at uh, you know where I de- deem fit, so the uh, the machine adds adds the oxygen to it there. Um, you know, that, that's a big decision. Do you want to rely upon the computer or do you want to do it by hand you know, or, or, or a hybrid? What, um, the other decisions are um, how, how deep do you plan on going with the unit? You know, some of the units are limited to 300 feet. Uh, some of the units, uh, you can get them in recreational format, which uh, will never go deeper than, um, you know, than sport depth, 130 feet. Um, some of the units... When you buy them, they come in a recreational configuration, and then you have to buy more parts to put them into a technical formation of configuration, bigger counter lungs and bigger uh, bigger batteries and things like that. 
Um, if anyone wants to buy, rebre- buy Rebreather, uh, you just need to start reading up on them. You know, take a look at Rebreather World, read some of the blogs, um, take a look at uh, what some of the different, different groups who are diving, uh, what they're using. Um, see what they like about them. <coughs> I know uh, Yika Hanakova's group, they like the uh, Megalodon series. Um, it's a lot of good things about the Megalodon series. Um, I like the Prism um, in part because uh, well, Jill Heinert uses hers in pretty much stock form to go out and do a 300-foot ice dive, no problem. Yeah, she, she will go down and play under, under icebergs 300 feet deep on hers. Go, go in the ice caves 300 feet deep on hers. And she has her bailout plumbed a little different than mine. Okay, but other than that, same regulators, same wing. <laughs> I think she's bigger bottles on hers. I'm not going to get you know, going to bottle envy with her, but I mean, uh, yeah. If, if she'll take hers down 300 foot on an ice dive, I feel pretty good about doing what I'm going to do with mine. So. Now, now, what's the consensus on rebreathers? You know, we've got Bob with the Kiss. We've got you with uh, what, what's your brand again? Uh, Hollis Prism too. Uh, Hollis uh, mm-hmm. is is the is that okay to have different rebreathers in the same dive group, or is it kind of frowned upon? You know, everybody who's diving uh, closed circuit should be using the same. Well, no, you know, you're really never going to have, um, you know in an area, a lot of people agreeing upon what rebreather to use, or even whether to use rebreather versus open circuit. Um, you know, you've got a lot of people who are diehards, <coughs> wonderful, great divers, people who have forgotten more than I'll ever know about diving, who are dead set, they're going to do open circuit, you know, and that's just what they know. Um, are they wrong? Hell no. I mean, that's, you, you have to do what works for you. Uh, you know, a huge part of being good, a good diver is being comfortable down there. And it takes a while to get comfortable with, with the rebreather. You know, I, I mean, yeah, I'm a little shy of 600 minutes. I'm nowhere near comfortable in the thing. You know, it, 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 it takes a while. You know, I'm still like an open water diver, okay? Um, you're, you're never going to have, you know, just like everyone wants to set the rig up different and have different color fins and, you know, some people want a snorkel and some people don't. And some people want a seven-foot hose and some want a 36-inch hose. And some people like the sidings and others want want the Zegals or the, um, you know, Apex. What what you use is kind of what what fits your style, what fits your wallet. So, yeah. But the, there's all kinds of protocol for rebreather divers diving with open circuit people. Um, there's different, you know, things that each have to know about, about their about their equipment, so that you know, if one of them has an emergency, so they can help each other out and things. Right. Uh, you know, you know, key thing if you're diving with the rebreather diver, um, if they're unconscious, you need to uh, make sure that you close the loop, and the rebreather diver diving with you should show you how to do that before you go underwater. Um, so when you say a, close the loop, you're talking about turn them then to open circuit. Correct. Correct, because the rebreather diver does have the option, if they have a bailout valve, um, of going to open circuit. And, um, and that just all, means that if they've blacked out, the thought is is that there's that something's gone wrong. They either weren't monitoring their 
their oxygen levels enough or they got some sort of uh, carbon buildup or but that going to open loop and then breathing off the diluent uh, should help them as you bring them up to a, a, a safe level. Yes, correct. If you find someone, if you find a breather diver unconscious, <coughs> the assumption is that it's because if they, they were breathing something wrong. You know, they shouldn't be breathing, <coughs> whether it's due to a scrubber failure or um, running out of oxygen. The, the diluent is supposed to be a, a blend that you can breathe at any level of your dive, um, at least in the recreational realm anyway. That does change. You get tech, but then you have additional bottles and things. Um, plus, the rebreather diver has a bailout bottle, too. You know, right. um, so I can go to breathe off, off the diluent if I'm in trouble. <clears throat> and basically, the diluent, you only breathe off of that just for a sanity breath, and then and then you go to your, your bailout bottle. Because if you're... If you breathe off your diluent, it goes very rapidly. Yeah, because so, you've got a smaller cylinder on a, on a rebreather circuit. Because what's what's yeah. the size of the tanks on yours? Um, twenty three cubic feet. So twenty three so, cubic feet. So if we're down at one hundred thirty feet, and you've been doing a half a dive, uh, you, know, you may only have twenty cubic feet at that at the point of a of a failure, and it wouldn't take loud. long to breathe through that. Correct. Yeah. So. They call it a sanity breath. So if you have something wrong, <clears throat> and, the, and the same thing applies to open circuit, you know, when in doubt, bail out. If you have, there's any diver has the right to call any dive at any time. So if you think there's something wrong, you know, signal to your buddy, um, the, the, the sign for something's wrong. You know, basically you're taking your wrist and you're wiggling, back, wiggling your hand back and forth. Something's not right. And I'm going up, and you bail out, which on a rebreather diver, it means you go to bail out. Uh, there's a valve on your mouthpiece that you, uh, that you switch, take a couple breaths off of that, and then you, from there you go to your, off, to your offboard bailout, which is basically your, your, your pony bottle. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, a lot of different procedures and things involved with that. Um, but really, if you've been an open-circuit diver, a lot of it, it's just a matter of, you know, realizing the procedure is a little bit different and, you know, taking the time to think, okay, I don't have an octo, so I can't go to my octo, so I'm going to my bailout. And it works. Works very well, actually. Well, cool. Well, I look forward to hearing more about your rebreather experience. You have to admit, I'm a little bit envious. It's, it's one of those items on my short list. Uh, I'm trying to figure out if I got to let my kids get through college first, or if I get a rebreather. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if if you're curious about any anyone in this area who's curious about rebreathers, uh, <clears throat> there are different shops that will hold a workshop on them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, I know the Divers Incorporated will have an evening to uh, you know give you a very basic rebreather uh, rebreather uh, test flight. Um, I did mine actually at Ghost Ships a year ago over in Milwaukee. They have a workshop. Um, it's only fifty bucks for the, right. the Ghost Ships one, and it's it, it, it's a it's about a three hour deal. You know, where they give you a you know a basic rundown of how the unit works, and they they let you test fly a couple of them. And yeah, and actually, all the lingo with rebreathers is, is, is like you're flying. Okay, so uh, you are you, you you become a pilot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, well with it, you know that's what you're referring to it as. Uh, 
But yeah, the, the one at Ghost Ships, you get to, to test drive a number of them and to get an idea of what you like about some units and what you don't like about others. And um, you know, some people really like the full manual control. They are more simple. Uh, you're not allowed to get complacent on it because if you get complacent, your PO2 drops too much, and um, well, you're not going to. You're going to get uncomfortable before you pass out, but you could pass out. So you have, you must be you know paying attention to push that button. Right. Um, you know the units fit different. Um, oh my my buddy Tracy, you know he's a kind of a taller guy and he just loves his Optima. It it fits him well. I'm a little shorter than Tracy. You know Optima is a little too long a chassis for me. It didn't fit me very well. Um, you know some people like the AP units just because of their their simplicity. You know, there's all kinds of, there's an infinite amount of variables to the different units out there. Um, if you want to go that way, you know, start reading, you know, right. take note of the different features on them. And uh, there's just the variables to them between, you know, some are harder to clean than others and um, some are harder to get parts for than others. Um, another big point to me with the uh, the Hollis Prism um, was it's it's made in the United States here. So parts are local. Um, also, the Hollis Prism, to my knowledge, is the only rebreather out there which is completely serviceable at the dive shop level. Um, so many of them have to be shipped back to the manufacturer, which, uh, but yeah, that's great. You know, if you're using a, the Megalodon, I think those are made over in Seattle. Um, you know, but a lot of them are made in Europe, too. Like right. I think the uh, all the AP units are made out of England. Um you know, there's then you're looking at shipping overseas and turn turnaround time and who knows what. So, you know, there's just so many variables to them. Yeah, it, and I, I I have to agree with you there, uh, Jim Schultz and I tried some rebreathers out a few years ago, and that was a thing. Is just even with the few models that we tried, just the difference between them, and it was a challenge. Uh, buoyancy I found to be quite a bit different, but not unmanageably so. But enough that where you realized, you know, you, you're going to have to spend, you know, a few hundred hours uh, dialing it in to get used to it to be to the level you were with the when you were an open circuit. I, th- I think it's a much more rapid learning curve, though. I don't think it's, it it's, takes as long, you know, to get to be good with your buoyancy with the rebreather as, you, as it did on open circuit. Um, you know, it's a little, it's very, <laughs> it's very humbling. Uh, you know. You, you really do end up checking the attitude at the door because, you know, I know most people, by the time they're going to be a rebreather diver, they think, like, I thought I was a pretty hot diver. I thought I was good at this stuff. Get up there and stick your face in the mud a few times, and, oh, I'm not such a good diver anymore. You know, it's <laughs> a little different deal, you know, when, you, when you're bouncing the bottom, and you're the guy who's, who's rototilling the bottom because you can't get off the bottom, you know, and it's just... <laughs> Yeah, it's a real attitude check. I'll where, tell you. Where's that elevator uh, button? <laughs> you well, you do have it, but again, keep in mind that that elevator button that goes to your to your BC um, is also tapping into your your, your diluent. So you want to be pretty sparing on it there. Um, yeah, go ahead and dump, but you're cutting your dive short if you do. You know, so. Well, very cool. Well, we'll we look forward to hearing about your experiences as the season goes on. Uh, did you did you get to do anything uh, I would call rebreather unique? I mean, were you doing any video where you're able to appreciate the rebreather 
versus the open circuit? I haven't reached the point where I can do a, a working dive with uh, you know, turning a camera down there yet. Um, I'll get there, but as of right now, just um, my hands are too busy with the you know pushing diluent, you know, pushing the diluent, or um, plus your, your bailouts on a different side of the rebreather and things. And I just haven't. I'm not at that level yet. I mean, um, for our listeners, you know, when you were like on still on your single-digit dives out of open water. That's about where I'm at this thing here. So, uh, you know, I solo diving is out of the question for me at this point. I'm not on the rebreather. Um, you know, yeah, I'm pretty paranoid if I can't see, see my buddy. Um, you know, I'm start. You know, I'm I'm back to being it, being the the new guy. You know? uh-huh. I mean, it's it, it's humbling. You know, you. I'm used to being the guy who was helping, help, was helping the new guy get in the water, and now they're all helping me. <laughs> <laughs> now, weight-wise, this this has got to be a little lighter than uh, a traditional open circuit setup. Not really. Um, it's it's lighter than a a, a set of doubles. Um, but no, it's not really. Well. I haven't got my weighting quite right on it either. I'm probably right now about eight pounds heavy in it. Um, I know the manual for the Hollis tells you to uh, plan on adding four to six pounds uh, over what you were diving with an aluminum 80. That's what the manual tells you to do. Um, the unit itself, um, you know, want to say... Minus the Zorb and the tanks, my breather weighs 28 pounds. So with Zorb and tanks, I'm probably sitting at around, um, you know, just over 40. Whereas like an aluminum 80 weighs around like 32 pounds plus whatever lifting. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's definitely heavier than diving with an 80. Um, I, t- I tend to dive with, uh, an LP 112 is my standard tank, and it's probably pretty comparable to that. Maybe even a little heavier than than the 112. So, okay. But yeah, check them out. Oh, and by the way, what, one last thing. Uh huh. I found out that the Hollis Prism. Yes. Uh, was actually uh, there was a gentleman, Peter Reedy, who used to make uh, upholstery cleaners, steam cleaning machines. And he liked to dive as well, and he got to looking at the you know, rebreather technology coming out back in the early 90s. And thought, you know, these kind of look like my steam upholstery machine, but my steam cleaner's here. So using um, his molds, because he, he was custom building, you know, steam cleaners, he would uh, he actually started making rebreathers out of those old steam cleaner molds. And actually made a pretty good machine out of them, good enough machine. Uh, Bob Hollis approached him and said, you know, we'd like to mass produce this. I think, I think we should do this. And they got together and um, got the design in a way where they, they could start mass producing the thing. And PRISM actually stands for Peter Reedy's Incredible Steam Machine. <laughs> So I, I'm yeah I'm 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 out there diving with a, a repurposed upholstery cleaner on my bed. <laughs> well, that's what I'm thinking. I mean, is is there like a spot where you have to put like the shampoo and the disinfectant in there? 
Well, it's 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 right where the Zorb goes in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you come out smelling yep. minty fresh. Yeah. Well, keep, keep on telling yourself that. All right. <laughs> if you think so. Well, very yeah. cool. Peter, well, Peter Reedy's incredible steam machine is what Prism actually stands for. Yeah. So. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> we'll figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> That might be so, a anyway, short title. I, <laughs> I I hope I haven't bored our listeners with too much rebreather talk, but I know it's, it's been a, a a reoccurring topic on our show. Um, they have a lot of advantage to them. Yes, there's a lot of expense to them as well. Um, and 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 they do slow. They do. They, there is more time involved with with prep and tearing them down. You can't just simply you know toss it in the in the back of your car uh, uh, until your next dive. You've got all kinds of pre-checks, and uh, the Zorb has a very limited life expectancy. Um, you know, the oxygen sensors cannot be overheated or frozen. So, you know, you do have to take a lot more delicate care of them than you do with your conventional scuba gear. But if you want to go deep and you want to stay deep and push back your decompression obligations, you can't beat a rebreather. You really can't because yeah. you're basically – diving with the perfect mix of um, nitrox for whatever depth you're at. So they're great. That's why I'm there. So what's the next dive we've got on a docket? I see, I see some talk. It uh, doesn't seem like many people other than when you early in the season have gotten out to Lake Michigan. So what's the dive scheduled for this weekend? Uh, I've been noncommittal because I've got other obligations. I know Bob Sweeney was talking about possibly a Lake 16 dive. Uh, I know a few people talking about Lake 16. I think uh, I Jason Blair and Rob Lesinski about diving Lake 16 as well. That's a good early season dive, even though it is May. Uh, yeah, well, you know, the, the biz should still be pretty good out there. Yep. So uh, um, I don't know. I'm going to recommend everyone to. And wanted to take a look at the Mud Club uh, Facebook page. Um, I'm probably not going to make it because I've got other obligations. I'm supposed, um, I'm, although they may get canceled, I'm supposed to dive um, on this uh, photogrammetry project uh, this weekend. The weather's not looking real good on it, though, so we'll see. Um, but, yeah, um, Lake 16, I think, is going to happen on Sunday. By what people are talking about. So that's uh, if you want to follow that, it's mudclub.scubaobsessed.com, or if you happen to be a member of the Mud Club Facebook page, that's usually a good place to see what's going on. So uh, I guess now we are to the time of the show where we need to do our shout-outs. So uh, I'd like to thank our Patreon supporters who are at that dive nitrox level. Uh, first on the list is that we've got Vanessa Homiak who has been a long-time supporter of the program and certainly appreciated. And we'd like to thank her. Uh, if you're out in the San Diego area and you're doing any diving, uh, you want to make sure you drop her a line and look her up because she has got an excellent operation out there where they're doing some diving. So thank you once again, Vanessa. And Patreon is a little slow for me, so I'm trying to get the other name. Oh, come on here. I need to stall a little bit where it starts to load. Uh, here we go. And we have Andrew Hughes, 
who has been not quite as long as Vanessa, but he's been quite regular with donating. So thank you, Andrew, for also being at the Dive Nitrox level. And we have a few people at other levels, which we don't read them out because I don't know if they want to be recognized. But to get that recognition, that's at Dive Nitrox level or, or greater. And we keep on building our supporters and supporters. We certainly appreciate and it gets us to be able to improve the podcast. You've seen Mac with his new microphone, and we expect Mac to be on the show here. Maybe if not the next week coming up here, I bet you we see him back on the program before June rolls around. Uh, he's got some things he's been uh, working on that have, have made him not be available for the program, but we will certainly see him. He is uh, still around and diving. And uh, thank you very much. Is there anything you want to plug, Kevin, before we get on with that time of the show? Well, um, yeah, I want to encourage all of our listeners to uh, support your local dive shops. I know we all like to get those uh, bargains online, but both of those bargains online aren't going to fill your scuba tanks. Also, uh, please continue to support your local libraries. You know, there's this popular talk going around about if you if it's important, you can find it online, but that's BS. There's a tremendous amount of information you're only going to find the old-fashioned way by going to the library and looking through the old archives. And if we lose those places, um, there's just a tremendous amount of information going to be lost. So please support your local librarian, libraries. And librarians are hot. Librarians are cool. Librarians take care of you. Let's keep them in business, all right, please? Thank you. May eight, May 18th. Yes. Going to be giving a uh, photo editing workshop at Days Divers in Portage, Michigan. Uh, Going to be sharing a lot of tips on how to get good quality shipwreck photos, the pitfalls of underwater photography, how to avoid them, and once you got your product, how to go ahead and edit them. And there is no cost for this. Feel free to bring a few photos you'd like to edit to work through on your own and uh, do my best to make you a better underwater photographer. Excellent. And this next joke, and I think this is the real reason it's not that uh, Jim is heading to New Jersey. I think it's that he doesn't want to be here to, reckon, to be held responsible for this bad scuba joke. But uh, since he's not here, we're going to let everybody know that he was the one who gave it to us. So are you ready for that time of the show? If I said no, would it make a difference? Not at all. All right, bring it on. So here we go. A man owned a small dive shop and dive boat in Michigan. The Michigan Workforce Development claimed he was not paying proper wages to his help and sent an agent out to interview him. I need a list of your employees and how much you pay them, demanded the agent. Well, said the the manager, there's my captain who's been with me for three years. I pay him $200 a week plus free room and board on the dive boat. The instructor has been with uh, here with me for 18 months, and I pay him $150 a week plus free room and board on the dive boat. Um then there's this halfwit. He works about 18 hours a day, does about 90% of the work, and he makes only $100 per week, pays his own room and board, and I buy him a bottle of bourbon every Saturday night. He also gets to sleep with my wife occasionally. That's a guy I want to talk to. The halfwit, says the agent. And Well, that would be me, replies the dive shop owner. Oh, I can see why Jim gave you that one. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so is, it, is, is, it, is the dive shop owner really the smartest guy in the group? 
Yeah. Yep. That came from Jim. No doubt about it. I can see that. So on that note, go out there and get wet. And from Max, stay safe. And from me, have a good time doing it. completed.